right, well, welcome to tonight's event, the words of God and the words of men reading in St. Augustine's Confessions. At the Sacramentalist podcast, we're believers in the idea that a rising tide raises all ships, so it's good when we have more Anglican podcasts. And so tonight we're excited to collaborate with another Anglican podcaster, Jared Henderson. Um, And as many of our listeners know, our focus this season has been on Anglo-Catholic piety and devotion. Understanding and developing our religious practices should involve a bit of ad fontes, and tonight we're going to do that by learning more about Augustine's approach to reading. So Jared is a writer and podcaster in Austin, Texas. He earned his PhD in philosophy from the University of Connecticut, focusing on philosophy of language, logic, and analytic theology. He hosts several podcasts in addition to Matins, including Augustinian and an upcoming podcast on the church year called Feasts and, sorry, called Fasts and Feasts. He's written in Covenant, the North American Anglican, and academic journals like Faith and Philosophy and the Journal of Philosophical Logic. So without further ado, take it away, Jared. All right. Yeah, great. Uh, It's really great to be here, and I'm really excited to be talking about this. So Today, um, I want to talk to you about um, St. Augustine's Confessions, but I also uh, want to talk to you about a topic that is sort of near and dear to me, which is which is reading. So uh, Father Wesley mentioned in the intro that I host these podcasts. One of them is Augustinian, where we've been doing uh, a deep dive, like a chapter-by-chapter read-through of St. Augustine's Confessions, but also in Matins. That is like an entirely text-based podcast. That's a podcast where I pick a different text from Christian history, read like a small section, and then talk about it. Um, so like I love to read. It's like it's my hobby. It's always the lamest question or the lamest answer you can give to that question when people ask you what you do. But like I read for fun, and I think reading is really cool, and I want to talk about it a bit today. But I want to actually talk a bit about both of those at the same time by talking about the experience of reading in St. Augustine's Confessions, and also the experience of reading St. Augustine's Confessions. So I think St. Augustine has a lot to say about the act of reading and what reading is like, but also I think that when you try to read St. Augustine's Confessions, there are certain sort of problems that arise for the reader, uh, sort of questions you need to answer before you can start wrestling with like the theology behind it even. So then I'm gonna conclude on a sort of uh, like applications note, you know, uh, I, I grew up as a Baptist, so a good sermon always has to have the applications at the end of the discussion of the text, and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that like a little bit too. So first, let's just talk about um, what I think are some some difficulties of reading Saint Augustine's Confessions. You know, and this can be particularly helpful if you're someone who has never read it before, or you've tried and you put it down and you want to pick it back up. Um, but I'm going to continue to tell you that actually, like, it's it's a weird book. It's actually kind of hard. So let's talk about the first difficulty, which actually I think is just determining what the genre of the work is. So I can identify um, really roughly, like, this was just something that came up to me when I was writing really fast, at least four different parts of um, the confessions that I think all fit into slightly different genres or they have very different topics so it begins with a with a narrative so the first part is this narrative of augustine's life that begins with his birth and then leads up to his baptism and the death of his mother saint monica that's books one through nine of the confessions and then uh, book 10 suddenly takes a very philosophical turn book 10 is the notoriously difficult chapter 
in the in the confessions where augustine is mostly talking about what in my translation is called memory but uh for us we might better think of it as something like self-consciousness because he's actually wondering what it is to be aware of god in his memories but also this means what it is to be aware of the fact that he is remembering like that's a huge question that he's raising it's very phenomenological when people would ask questions about um the, the grounds of knowledge, and then they would talk about the possibility of knowing the grounds of knowledge, and then they would keep repeating these questions until they, they were satisfied. Um, and then we take a turn into time and eternity, and we're discussing a lot of stuff in Genesis, and this is where we get his interpretation of Genesis 1, of uh, things about the heavens of heavens comes up as well. Um, you're getting some Augustinian cosmology, um, just lots of, lots of good stuff. And then in book four, uh, in the part four, uh, which I would actually say is books 11 through 13, you're actually getting a discussion of just all of Genesis one. So you're going to talk about the creation narrative, but this is even where he talks about the theology of the church in Genesis one. So it's all centered in Genesis. Um, and now if you look at those four things, those are four very different topics. They're not clearly related and they all seem, uh, to invoke different modes of reading, right? So you have to always know what kind of, uh, what the genre is of a book as you can sort of take it on its own terms. And the question is, how do you approach a work like St. Augustine's Confessions? But of course, like anyone who has read the book can immediately object. They're going to say, this taxonomy is already kind of misleading because Augustine has engaged in serious theological work while telling the narratives of book one through nine. So it's not as if Augustine is merely like telling a story and then decides to make the work sort of respectable by doing some theology at the end. So we have to remember that Augustine would almost certainly be dictating this. He's probably like standing around and talking to scribes. And it's like he got really caught up in his own memories and then decided, oh, I need to make this respectable. I need to make it worthwhile. It's not like that at all, because in books one through nine, you'll typically have what I was originally conceiving of as like theological interjections. So you're going to have extended discussions of God or mentions of theology or sort of uh, lots of wrestling with deep philosophical or theological issues. Um, they're often like connected to the plot, but they can get kind of off into their own thing and they can sometimes last a couple of pages. And a, one of the driving questions there is sort of Augustine is trying to determine the presence of God and he's working out what I think is like a philosophy of, of sovereignty, figuring out what it is for God to be sovereign and to be connected to us in some way through all of creation. But there are reasons to actually to think that one through nine aren't just a narrative that go beyond the fact that sometimes he does theology in the middle of them. Um, so when we think about narratives, we often want to classify them into two groups, one of them being fiction and another being uh, nonfiction. Like that's our rough and ready distinction. And since Augustine is telling us the story of his life, we often want to categorize the confessions as a kind of nonfiction. And in particular, uh, people want to say it's something like a memoir or an autobiography. There's already a complication there because at the time of writing, the memoir or the autobiography was not a, as strong of an established tradition as we have now in Western literature. Um, so already it's going to be weird when it, we're going back this early into the Western canon. But also I think it raises what I kind of call like the saintly dilemma. And I say this because it all has to presume that, you know, Augustine being a saint is probably pretty smart and pretty pious. So here's the problem. I think that Augustine either, if it's, if it's a work of nonfiction, Augustine either does a very poor job of writing his own narrative, like he's just a bad writer, or he's a liar. 
And that doesn't seem like a conclusion that we want to draw. Like this dilemma seems quite bad. Augustine is like obviously a very good writer. Reading the Confessions is to read like this this mat like this masterwork of prose. People who know the Latin talk about how how beautiful it really is. Um, but also, since Augustine is so obviously a saint, I think that to say that he's lying to us, um, I mean, we should we should be really careful before we before we do this. Now, you might say, you know, why do I why do I think this is this is right? Well, the problem is that we know from some of Augustine's earlier writings that he changes his story when he writes the Confessions. And I think the best example of this is in his assessment of St. Ambrose. So for those of you who need a little bit of context, St. Ambrose was Bishop of Milan, um, and he ends up becoming like a kind of a spiritual father to Augustine. He's one of the people that helps lead Augustine into the church. Um, St. Ambrose also had... A lot of his own accomplishments, in particular fighting against um, sort of um, a lot of uh, Arians or sort of the Arian controversies. Uh, and there were like standoffs with um, with like the government over who should be allowed to worship in the uh, in churches and cathedrals. So there are like some serious issues. And uh, Ambrose seems pretty good. However, uh, if you read the early uh, the early writings of Augustine, and he wrote a lot, and he mentions Ambrose he actually gives this really negative assessment of Ambrose. He says that Ambrose is something like a, like a relic peddler is a phrase that one scholar uses because he would, he would uh, sort of get the relics of the saints and like prance them about in these, in these big showy demonstrations. And we also know that Ambrose had some kind of conflict with Monica at least once um, about her practice of going to the graves of saints and I'm taking wine, um, which can very easily kind of look like a pagan ritual, but also there is this, part of the confessions where you start to wonder about Monica's relationship to alcohol because uh, it comes up quite a bit uh, with Augustine. So Augustine didn't seem to like Ambrose, but if you read the confessions, you would not know this because when, when he talks about Ambrose, it is always positive. He mentions his defense of the faith. He mentions his charity in dealing with Monica, and he doesn't mention any of the criticisms about relics. And so it would seem that Augustine really like has changed his mind or uh, has somehow changed his story. And if you're telling um, if you're telling a true story about yourself, the narrative, to not even mention the fact that you had this negative assessment of the man um, early on seems like a real oversight. It seems like you're doing something to like mislead or you've just like forgotten something about your own past. However, I think uh, I think that this, this kind of dilemma can be avoided because I think what we want to end up saying is that uh, the confession should not be confined into a narrative or a memoir or an autobiography uh, for the reasons that I kind of alluded to above. For one, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, they don't seem to fit very well into the narrative. There is, in fact, even at the end, there is no narrative conclusion to the book. It ends in theology. And then also, you know, books one through nine have a lot of theology going on in them. But also the book itself, like, starts with addresses to God. And there seems to be something uh, where this suggests a new way of reading uh, Augustine's Confessions. And this is not original to me, but I think it's a point that is really important to tell, like, lots of people about. Is that you should read the Confessions instead, like, one giant prayer. 
So he's not reporting the truth as he sees it or as he once saw it. He's actually speaking directly to the truth. And he's doing his best to reflect the truth back to God. It's a little bit different here. So he's not going on about his personal assessments of Ambrose when he originally arrives in Milan or first encounters Ambrose. No, instead, what he is trying to do is, in light of everything that has happened, and you have to remember that Augustine is writing this book when he is basically about to become Bishop of Milan, and he becomes Bishop fairly quickly. Like, from baptism to Bishop is not like a huge gap in his life. Um, and he had lived a pretty full life before baptism. So, you know, I like to, I, I often kind of think of Augustine, uh, and I mentioned this early on in the podcast Augustinian, where I say, like, Augustine is clearly this man that we, re- we revere as this saint, and um, he's my favorite theologian, so I have, like, the highest respect for this man. But I cannot imagine being in his shoes, finding out that you are now a bishop, like, you by popular demand, basically. People are insisting that you should become a bishop. You haven't been a Christian that long. You are highly aware of your own personal failings, so much so that you can write a book about them, and just to be scared, right? And these are some of the questions that animate him, is actually how is he going to properly defend the faith against, in particular, Manichaeans because of his own past with the Manichaeans? So what does Augustine do? Well, he does what any pious individual would want to do in this situation, which is that he turns to God and just starts praying. And if you read the Confessions as a prayer to God, there is always, I think, going to be a sort of deeper meaning to the words that he says. I think this actually opens up new modes of reading. For instance, I think you can allegorize parts of Augustine's story. So he doesn't need to report the facts back to God, right? Uh, Just saying, and then I was two, and then I was three. Like, God knows all of these things. Augustine is engaging in a kind of theological reflection and prayer. He is speaking directly to God, and then he, he is lining up his own story with biblical narratives. I think you can see a parallel with the fall when you see Augustine stealing the pears in his youth. There's a very famous scene in the, uh, the Confessions where Augustine sins for the sake of sinning, basically. Um, and then you get all these discussions nearby about how he's not been baptized, right? So you see the fall. You see a lack of uh, cleansing uh, of sin. Um, but we also see a, uh, an allegory of like the restoration of paradise. Augustine's conversion, or his, his fall, takes place in a garden, or it takes place in an orchard. His restoration, or his conversion, takes place in a garden as well, when Lady Continence visits him, and then he is told to pick up and read by these voices. So Augustine is primarily, I think, telling a spiritual narrative within a prayer, and so he, and oftentimes he is going to use the best language he has for that, which is the language of Holy Scripture. I highly recommend when you're reading this book to make sure that you are reading an edition that puts all the biblical citations in, because you will see sometimes that Augustine can go whole paragraphs where he seems to be doing nothing but quoting the Psalms, the Pauline uh, letters especially, and Genesis. Those seems to be where his heart really is in those books, but he is very familiar with the entire biblical canon. And he's going to make full use of it as he speaks to God. So this all leads me to my next point. With wrestling with how Augustine tells his own story, and thus how we should read the Confessions, it actually helps us better understand some parts of the Confessions. So now I'm going to redivide the Confessions into um, five pieces or five parts. 
And then I'm going to talk to you actually about how all five of those are defined in part by the books that Augustine is reading at the time. So the five, the five phases I want to talk about are Augustine's childhood, his education. Um, I'm going to call I'm going to use the phrase fall again in a slightly different context. So Augustine's fall, his ascent, uh, and I'll explain what that means in a second and his conversion. So Augustine's childhood is told in the earliest books. This is where he's discussing what it's like to actually just, just be a child. And here Augustine is not reading. Um, however, the story begins with an account of language. It begins with an account of how his parents taught him to speak and to read. When he wants to note one of his earliest sins, it's how he communicates with his parent, parents as an infant. Uh, he sees this as a marker of his, uh, of his original sin or his fallen state. So we have already this, what seems like it could be like an unnecessarily philosophical bit, unless you think that words and language are playing a huge role in framing the story. The second is Augustine's education. Augustine is very well educated. Even for his social class, he is very well educated. Um, we, we learn that, for instance, Augustine struggles with Greek, but he excels at Latin. And uh, one of the people that he reads is, is, is Cicero. And he is reading other, uh, like the other great artist of rhetoric, right? And again, there's language. But he doesn't seem at this point in time to understand that rhetoric is kind of hollow without a pursuit of truth, right? So in philosophy, we often talk about the sophist. And the sophists are people who are interested in persuasion, but they're not actually interested in persuading people to the truth. They're interested in persuading people um, to whatever is convenient at the time, whatever pursues like or what furthers their own ends. And that's what Augustine basically eventually assesses his own career as. Right before Augustine is baptized, he actually quits teaching rhetoric um, because eventually he's going to become a, uh, a teacher of rhetoric because he thinks that all he's doing is, to put it maybe too simply, is teaching rich kids how to get ahead in court. And he says, like, maybe this isn't the best use uh, of my gifts. He's also here taken in by like theater. Again, this is beauty without an orientation towards truth. So... Augustine's education also has this highly linguistic component and in including falling in love with some of the, these works. And then this final bit, which I, I refer to as Augustine's fall uh, here, though it's a little bit different than the garden scene, is when Augustine actually uh, reads the works of the Manichaeans. And he's introduced to the idea that the Manichaeans are these respectable scientific people of the day. So the Manichaeans would often focus on the fact that Christianity's key premises cannot be proven. They would often point to apparent absurdities in Christian claims about cosmology. And then they would supplant them with their own cosmological claims, which we would then view as absurd, but they would always promise would become clearer to someone as they were further initiated in the kind of mysteries of Manichaeism. Augustine actually reveals that he has given more and more books and that eventually, uh, he realizes maybe he's never going to get answers. He meets a fairly prominent uh, Manichaean whose name I cannot recall at this time, um, who uh, he, he realizes this guy's read all the same books as me and he didn't understand them. <laughs> um, and that's around the time 
uh, when he decides that perhaps Manichaeism might not be for him. So he becomes a very dedicated Manichaean. In fact, Manichaeans help him in his career quite a bit. We would not have St. Augustine without the Manichaeans. And there's kind of a, a great testament to the fact that God can use evil for good <laughs> right there. Um, also in this stage, Augustine has started to read the Bible, but he mentions that he's not able to appreciate it. He doesn't understand the sort of depths of scripture. And to him, these are kind of empty words. So the final bit, which I call his ascent as kind of the reversal of this fall, is when Augustine decides that maybe Manichaeism is kind of bunk. He decides that Manichaeism uh, is something that he should reject. But he doesn't immediately go to Christianity. He actually turns to a lot of philosophy. And this is where we see another huge influence in Augustine's uh, life and his writings, which are, uh, would be the Neoplatonist, or uh, especially Plotinus. This is someone he gets a lot out of, uh, is Plotinus. Uh, it's good to have a critical edition of these texts because they can point to you to all of the parallels with Plotinus, especially in those creation chapters um, later on. Augustine reads the Neoplatonist, and he thinks, hey, maybe... Uh, maybe because of the parallels between Christianity and Neoplatonism, and since Neoplatonism is so interesting and compelling, maybe Christianity is, in fact, not that weird. But he also reads the academic skeptics. He doesn't seem to be as into them, but it does seem to play a big role in his life, or at least a, some role in his life. And he learns about this idea that maybe our everyday beliefs uh, might not be as supported in the epistemic sense um, as we would typically think. And then in one of my favorite little bits of the Confessions, uh, Augustine mentions that he reads Aristotle's categories and finds, like, no value in it. He thinks everything that's true in the categories is, like, common sense that you wouldn't need to read Aristotle for, and then everything that's not common sense is probably, is probably bad. Given the role of uh, <laughs> Aristotle's categories in medieval theology, I think this is, like, very, very funny. But by reading philosophy, something that happens is that Augustine starts to view Christianity not as something that he actually actively believes, but as something that he considers a live possibility. So he begins to think this could be an option. And then given his associations with Christians, in particular Monica, Monica is apparently a very faithful woman, and she's praying for her son, and she's encouraging him to go to church. Um, and it, it, it's also clear throughout this whole narrative, he occasionally goes to Christian churches even when he's a Manichaean. We know this because at one point he admits while he's traveling to like lusting after a woman while she's in church. So um, uh, it's, it's in these confessional bits that you can learn that he's still going. And he starts to consider it a live possibility, and philosophy has sort of cleared the way for him. And then finally is Augustine's conversion. Augustine, when he decides that he wants to uh, possibly consider Christianity, he immerses himself in scripture. It seems clear that um, he really loved the writings of Paul and he really loves the Psalms. Uh, now, there are some parts where he seems like he's better equipped to understand than others. Um, right before he's baptized, Ambrose tells Augustine to read Isaiah and Augustine doesn't finish it because he says he didn't understand it, so he quit. Um, but, uh, so he starts reading the Bible and he seems to like it. And he says he and he says that he starts to be able to better understand it. Um, though what understand means is going to be an important point. But then we get to our famous scene, uh, uh, the conversion scene in the garden. You know, I feel if you know maybe two scenes from uh, the Confessions without reading it, it's the fall scene where he steals the pears. 
Um, the pairs are even on the artwork for Augustinian because they're kind of iconic here. And then, um, and then it's the, the conversion scene. You at least know a little bit about it. Augustine has found himself in a garden. He's with one of his friends who has also considered Christianity and who had also considered Manichaeism because of him. He's kind of a follower of Augustine. Um, they're in the garden, they're reading, they're doing various things. But while Augustine is in the garden, he starts to hear a voice which says, um, tole lege, or take up and read. The, the grammar apparently is a little bit odd. It's a weird thing to hear. But he hears this um, he hears this voice. At one point, he speculates that perhaps it is um, actually children who are playing some kind of game. Uh, and he just like, hears them over a wall or something. But he doesn't know. But he's also visited um, by Lady Continents, you know, this embodiment of the church. Um, or if, uh, since Father Wesley is looking at me right now, uh, you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And he is visited by Lady Continents, and, and the lady essentially says, Augustine, why do you refuse to actually join? Why, um, you, you're lingering sort of at the doors of the church, but why won't you come in? Like, I'm waiting. Augustine uh, is not able to give a good answer to this, and he rushes back and he picks up his Bible, and he reads this passage from Romans. And suddenly, he reads it and he thinks that, God is speaking to him through this passage and he decides he's going to be baptized and he tells his friend and his friend then picks up the Bible, opens it up and reads it and thinks he's being spoken to by God. And he decides he's going to get baptized as well. Um, and the rest here is kind of history. Like they decide they're going to get baptized. They, fi they finish their catechumenate and uh, they're brought into the, the baptism. Augustine is then uh, his conversion is so amazing. He quits his job in rhetoric. And because of his high standing in the city at the time, uh, they actually offered, I believe, to not have him um, proclaim his conversion sort of at the top of the church, like many people did or on this balcony. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting Augustine confused with someone else he talks about, where he sees this as his model. This man who had like this high acclaim was offered to not have to proclaim his conversion and his confession out loud, but could instead do it in private. And Augustine seems really drawn to this, I'm sorry, and, and wants to have this bold confession, and he's very open about it. And that's why Augustine feels okay quitting his job, which brings him a lot of social status. It puts him you know, into the social circles with like the richest people in the city. So something has changed, I think, in this, in this part of the story. And Augustine has surely read this passage in Romans um, because he mentions his love of the Pauline epistles. He said he'd uh, read it many times. And I also want to point out, like, while God works in mysterious ways, oftentimes when you pick up a book and it opens itself up to a page, it's because you've turned it to that page many times before, right? So, so there is actually a pause. Like, one reason that it would open itself up to Romans is that whenever Augustine opened up a book, it would go to Romans, Right there is like you know his past affected him, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But but something about the the experience of reading has changed, and on on my view, it's because Augustine is actually finally able to see the difference between this book and all the others that he's read, and namely he is able to recognize that through Holy Scripture, God still speaks to people, and that's a really powerful difference. Right, if you're just reading it as these interesting writings from Paul, you can say these are interesting. They do a lot about, they say a lot about the human condition, but when you start to actually view them as a way that God communicates with you, they take on a whole new level of meaning and it, it inspires you to action in a new kind of way. So some conversion stories, 
in particular those involving the saints, think about St. Francis, for instance, um, they give God a voice, right? And God uh, actually speaks directly to someone, so they directly hear. Um, we see this also in Scripture, this is attested to, um, that some people are fortunate enough to hear the voice of God directly. Many of us don't, though, right? Many of us will not have that kind of experience. Um, and Augustine does not seem to have that kind of experience. Augustine's communication with God is indirect, it's mediated. But it's through means, I, typically, that all of us have access to. So God speaks to Augustine. That part is absolutely true. But he speaks to Augustine through Lady Continence. Okay, most of us are not going to have appearances from Lady Continence. But he also speaks to uh, Augustine through the words of Scripture, which is something I've got two Bibles within arm's reach right now. Right? This is something that we can, we, we can do on a daily basis. So I've spent a lot of time so far... Uh, I've spent a lot of time with the confessions this past year, uh, you know, making Augustinian and also just for my own edification, reading it slowly. And as I've been doing this, I've been thinking a lot about uh, reading as a spiritual discipline. This is going to fit in nicely with the, uh, the theme of the season, right? So I'm by nature a reader. You know, I like it. I, I enjoy it. Uh, and it's easy to take something you like and rationalize it as a spiritual discipline, you know, if, maybe if I was someone who really liked to run, I'd have this view about running as a spiritual discipline. But I actually think, you know, I'm also a philosopher, so I think there are some good arguments for the views I have. So one of them, you know, and this might sound a bit like a pun at first, but I think, I think it's significant. Look, in the first chapter of uh, the Gospel of St. John, we identify Jesus with the Logos, right? The Word made flesh. And I think just merely the fact that Jesus is identified with something that we can signify as the word should tell us that we should take words in general quite seriously, right? It tells us that the intellect matters. It tells us that communication matters. When God creates the heavens and the earth, he speaks it into existence. This is something that Augustine wants to talk about quite a bit um, because the speaking is actually um, the speaking of Jesus, right? Meaning it is the relationship between the Father and the Son. You know, through him, all things are made. So we should strive for holy speech, but I also think we should strive to make our reading holy as well. Now, second, I, let's return a bit to this uh, story of Augustine reading Romans in the Garden. So God uses the Bible to speak Augustine uh, to Augustine in the Garden, but it's also no surprise that Augustine's Bible would open to Romans when he reached for it because he had read it many times. And I think this speaks to a general principle that what we, what we read often will shape us spiritually, even if we don't realize it now. While there is a particular way that God uses the Bible to speak to his people, it's also true that God can use any means he desires. He may even use the books we read regularly just to speak to us at a particular time. I'm reminded of many anecdotes I hear to make a parallel with the daily office. One of the, the great gifts of the Anglican tradition is an accessible office for laity and clergy alike. Um, it, it's, uh, the, I think anyone with a little bit of dedication can pray the daily office every single day. Um, and one of the benefits of it is that there are going to be times in your life when you are unable to pray, when you just can't bring yourself to do it, when you don't have the words. And those words of the daily office will sort of be, they will feel comfortable in your mouth. Right? And you'll be able to say them almost without speaking or without thinking. It gives you a way to speak to God. And some days those are going to come, uh, those are going to come in handy. 
Um, I think all of us have had these days uh, where it's hard to pray. The office helps there. But when we're at our lowest moments as well, I think uh, something like this is a great comfort. So while the daily office, if you're praying um, through the Psalms regularly with the office, maybe not every Psalm is, is speaking to you that day. Maybe not every Psalm is clearly communicating to you something. Um, but you might not know how, how God is shaping you with that reading uh, there. And you don't know that maybe three months from now on this same day of the month, you're gonna, you're, uh, God is going to speak to you in a particular way through reading you know, Psalm 31. So I've said a little bit about how Augustine views reading, how we can read Augustine, and why we should strive for this holy reading. And now I'm going to move on to this kind of applications bit. I want to talk to you a bit uh, just about what we can do. So reading itself is a spiritual practice, just in a similar way, actually, I think that eating can be. And I mean this here, where reading is something that all of us do, and we can sanctify it in a particular way, just as we sanctify the way that we eat through the cycle of feast and fast. Because thinking about how we uh, turning eating into a discipline can actually draw you closer to God, as opposed to making a purely functional way of just, you know, getting your calories. Um, so reading itself can take on a whole new depth here. Now, all of us have access to libraries, which are vastly larger than uh, anything St. Augustine would have ever had. I, I'm looking just around my living room. It's got a couple of bookshelves. I probably have at least like 200 books in this room, right? Um, I have access to many works uh, through my like public library and through the internet. I can find basically anything I want to read. Um, and so we can, we can read widely in, in ways that previous generations could only have dreamt about. However, I actually want to warn against this, right? I love to read, but breadth is not depth. And what I think we see with Augustine is while clearly he reads a lot of authors, he clearly had identified several authors or several works that he was truly going to devote himself to. Uh, Cicero, Plotinus, the Pauline epistles, the Psalms, which he knew by heart he could recite these easily. He had an intimate relationship with these texts and all of them shape him in some fashion. So while you can have a general knowledge of literature and theology and philosophy, I think you have to recognize that um, in addition to trying to dabble a bit, you know, and that's a healthy part of your reading, finding those authors or those works, especially something in the Bible, I think, you know, it should be a component of this, that you read often and you really want to dive deeply, you want to like dive deep into it. Uh, this itself, I think, is, is, is a crucial part of anything uh, using uh, reading like a spiritual practice. Read it slowly, um, sometimes read it fast, other times. Just as a casual remark, when I was in graduate school, I took a seminar on Hegel, and I asked the professor, what's the best way to understand Hegel, a notoriously difficult philosopher? And he said the best way to understand Hegel is to read Hegel. And, and then he suggested that I try to read as much Hegel as possible for a month and then read it really slowly afterward. I did not follow his suggestions, and I did really poorly in the class, but I now actually see the wisdom in what he said. <laughs> I think he was actually being pretty, um, he was being pretty wise when he said this. The second thing is here I want to say is that in some sense you need to refrain from assessing the books before you read them. So while there has to be some degree of discernment, you can't just pick a random book every time. I don't think you should go looking for the books that you think are going to be the most beneficial for you necessarily, that you've been told would be the best. Um, here's an illustration from Augustine's life, is the academic skeptics. This was just something he had heard other people were reading, it seemed. 
And if you're familiar with classical philosophy at all, basically the academic st- skeptics are involved in a kind of skept- skeptical project where they're going to show that our epistemic situation is much worse than most people would assume. It's primarily critical. Um, some of them find a lot of, of comfort in this, and they develop a kind of philosophy of life about it, but still, there's a huge critical component. I don't think that it would uh, be clear to Augustine that the academic skeptics uh, would do this for him, like that, like that they would have this benefit. But, but it did, right? And it was just his general openness to reading something um, that allowed him to get this benefit. You're going to be surprised by the ways that reading can shape you. Um, if you can give me an anecdote, I actually have a very similar experience with skepticism uh, that Augustine had, where, um, so I, had, I, I grew up as a Baptist as a kid. I was really devout, but in college, I was basically like an angry atheist, and I returned to the faith in in, um, in graduate school. And I had this kind of conversion experience, um, uh, and I decided I wanted to be a Christian, but I was like a Christian, but I didn't feel good about it because like I, I thought I was being like epistemically irresponsible. Like, how could I justify all of these, like, what I thought were, like, crazy views, you know, about metaphysics, right? I was a good naturalist at the time. Um, and then I took some classes. I took one on on David Hume, and we just read A Treatise of Human Nature really slowly. And then I took another one just on skepticism in general. And I became, like, really enamored with, like, this skeptical trend in philosophy. But instead of taking this to mean that by being a skeptic, that meant I had to deny that God existed, it showed me actually that, that life in our epistemic situation is full of these little leaps of faith all the time to believe in external objects and stuff. This is kind of a wacky thing, but it's the example that um, philosophers would talk about. And I realized, I, I, okay, I'm just taking another leap of faith. Now, believing in Jesus is like a little bit different than choosing to believe that there's a chair. Um, but there, uh, and so it has to be treated a little bit differently, but basically I needed this like philosophical nudge, um, to make me think that maybe Christianity was something I could really devote myself to. And, and so I did. And now I would not describe my, my faith as primarily grounded in first a kind of pre-theoretical skepticism or something like that. Um, but it's probably what I needed at the time to get me here. It's what I needed at the time to let me feel okay about sort of going all in on Christianity, immersing myself in its tradition, and trying to better understand it. So though Christianity is like sort of, um, oh, sorry. So like Augustine, uh, reading philosophy could help me become a Christian. And so while I wasn't reading Christian philosophers, uh, Hume may have been a Presbyterian, right? But like, who really knows? Um, uh, I wasn't reading Christian philosophers, and I wasn't reading apologetics, um, but I was just engaging in the life of the mind. I just wanted to do philosophy, and I think this tells us something else in general, that we shouldn't think of this life of the mind and the life of faith as opposed, and that just by generally trying to cultivate the mind, reading is one of the primary ways that you can do this. You can actually be strengthening your faith in ways that you did not think um, were possible or that were likely beforehand. And so my, uh, my third and final point here is that I think just like with the daily office, you have to be disciplined about it. So I, I think classically Anglicans would not need to be told this, but uh, nowadays we really have to say this. I think, I think Anglicanism ha- has a kind of discipline baked into its structures, but we need to emphasize it sometimes. You know, if you don't make time to pray, you won't pray, right? It's not about, fi- it's not about like, oh, I'll get, I'll get to it, right? You have to make the positive act of choosing time. I think if you don't make time to keep your office, then you won't keep it. And I think similarly with reading, if you do not make time to read, you will not read. Um, 
I think maybe some people on here and other people listening might follow me on Twitter. You should, because I'm very funny and insightful, but, um, you would have seen, I had this very long experience about getting a chair delivered from FedEx. That was very frustrating. Uh, and I think sometimes funny for other people. I now have this chair and I'm very happy with it. And I bought it purely for the idea that I have a corner of my room, which I have turned into like a reading spot. I have like a little lamp. I have a bookshelf. I have a chair. It's great. I read there on purpose. Like I choose to read there because if I read in bed, I fall asleep. I, I'm, I'm one of those people who I, I could, I could be reading in bed at 7:30 PM and I would fall asleep. Right. It's just, it's something that lulls me to sleep really easily. If I'm reading in that chair, I can read as long as I'd like. So I choose a particular place and I choose a particular posture. Just like in prayer, we can choose a place and we can choose a posture. And some days I don't feel like reading. Uh, and, you know, this week, you know, with, like there's a lot of political stuff and I didn't feel like reading for a lot of it. But you know what? You force yourself to do it. You make the time and you say, I'm going to be the kind of person who wants to who, who wants to read right now. In my undergraduate days, I really barely read. I was, a, I was a very poor undergraduate student. I don't know how I got into graduate school. I watched a lot of Netflix. I played a lot of video games. I drank a lot of beer. Um, but now I'm to the point where like on like I read like 50 to 75 books a year. And I can do that because I say like, look, I have time in my day every single day to read. Right? It's the same way of like going to the gym uh, or any kind of other positive habit. But for speci- specifically like spiritual disciplines, uh, it's important there not to think of it in terms of of goals, right? It's not like I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to read 50 books. It should re- rather be instead that I am hoping that this will form me or shape me in some way, and I have to give God time to do that, right? Because um, while God, you know, God can do whatever he wants, um, uh, unlike almost any other guest here, I'm like, uh, I'm a fairly Calvinist kind of guy here. So I'm pretty much like, yeah, God's going to take care of whatever he wants to take care of. Sometimes God wants you to do some of the work too, and he's going to ask you to do it. (laughs) Um, But uh, here, I want to conclude on this note for this. I want to say that if you are looking at like setting a goal and you want to read more as a spiritual practice, we have another example from the confessions, but this time it's the holy example of St. Ambrose, which uh, Augustine mentions that Ambrose sets himself apart because he is so busy, but he makes time to read, and he has to read silently. At the time, reading silently was this culturally very strange thing. Most people read aloud or had something read to them. But but Ambrose was just finding whatever time he could, or rather better, he was making whatever time he could to try to read, particularly to read scripture, because he knew it was something that he needed to do. He knew it was one way that God could speak to him and communicate to him. Make the most of your leisure. something we have more than many of the ancients and uh, use that time I think to devote yourself to holy reading.